0: Before we jump into today's episode, we would like to give a content warning. In what follows, we discuss suicide. Hi, I'm David Peña Guzman.
1: And I'm Ellie Anderson. Welcome to Overthink. The
0: podcast where two friends
1: who are also professors put philosophy in dialogue with the everyday. Because big ideas are within everyone's reach. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to share with you the contents of today's episode. But before we do that, we have a very rare ask.
0: Very rare. (laughs) We are at almost 100 reviews. On Apple. Yes, on Apple. And we would love it if you would take a minute of your lovely time to write a review for us, a fair review, but preferably an amazing review.
1: Yeah, no, know. Five stars, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we know that some of you don't listen to us on Apple. Spotify has recently introduced reviews. So if you listen to us on Spotify, please review us there. But if you don't have time for a review, you can also just give us a simple rating. Here's your moment. We're building it into the episode. Pull out your phone. Go to the app of choice. Go ahead. Click on our show. You're probably already there because you're listening to it. Scroll down to the bottom and under ratings or reviews, please just hit this five-star button. Oh, well, you really went off the rails there, David. Okay, that's probably enough time because now people are like, I am tuning out. Thank you all. We appreciate you so much. We really want to keep Overthink going for as long as we possibly can. And yeah, reviews are really important for folks eyeing the show for the first time. And so we really appreciate your support. Hey, and if by the time you're listening to this episode, we have already well-exceeded 100 reviews, please, please, please still do this. It means a lot to us.
0: Yeah, because if by now you're still listening, chances are you kind of love us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We are launching in to the content <laughs> of today's episode, antinatalism. Ellie, in
0: 2019, there was a major controversy involving an Indian man by the name of Raphael Samuel who very publicly made the claim that he intended to sue his parents for having committed the great injustice of dun-dun-dun, having brought him into the world. (laughs) Now, the case got a lot of attention because he says he loves his parents and has a perfectly good, healthy relationship with them. No!
1: No! Oh, my God. (laughs)
0: but he believes that they violated his rights in some way by not getting his consent before having done the deed that brought him into the world.
1: But how can you violate the rights of a non-being, right? Like he only has rights in as much as he is a living human being. And so the very condition for the possibility of his saying that they violated him is that he's already born.
0: So I suspect this is why the lawsuit probably never actually went anywhere because I tried to follow (laughs) the story after 2019 and I just couldn't find any information beyond that original moment where he announced to the world that he didn't want to exist and that he was suing his Mm. parents. So I suspect that this might be why it didn't get any legal traction.
1: It's funny because in these cases where somebody says it would have been better if I didn't exist at all, I'm just kind of like... It often feels to me like they are imagining being a little unborn baby soul <laughs> up in the universe somewhere Gosh. and trying to decide should I come down from my sweet womb of a heavenly resting place and be in the world or not. It's almost as if they're imagining themselves as potentially existent beings. Before existence. And potentially non-existent beings. Yeah, but (laughs) to be a being means to be existent. It's almost like the Disney movie Soul, where there's all of these like unborn souls that live up in the sky somewhere. It's just like such a fantasy. (laughs)
0: So I don't disagree with you. But if I were to put on my hat representing this guy's philosophy, I suspect he would argue that his existence just by virtue of the amount of suffering that he has endured, is already bad enough that it justifies the claim that he would have been better off not
1: existing. With his wonderful, loving parents and the beautiful family life. He had. I, I
0: know, I love that he's like, <laughs> I love you guys, but I'll see you in court. But, you know, the funny thing is that we might want to think about this guy as a lone voice in the wilderness, you know, a random guy with a random worldview trying to sue his parents for having given birth to him. But it seems as if his case reflects a growing view among certain corners of the population. And the reason that I say that is because one of the films that was nominated for the Oscars in uh, 2018... It's a movie called Capernaum by the Lebanese director Nadine Labaki. And the movie tells a story of a young boy, a Syrian refugee child who is living in Lebanon, who has a very difficult life. And towards the end of the movie, this is not a spoiler uh, moment, but the movie hinges on the fact that this kid, due to circumstance, Eventually sues his parents in a Lebanese court, making literally the same argument that Raphael Samuel tried to Mm. make in an Indian courtroom, which Mm -hmm. is that his existence should not have happened and that his parents somehow violated his rights by having procreated. And so the kid not only sues his parents for having given birth to him, but also argues that they should be prevented from having any other kids in the future.
1: Widespread attention to the problems of procreating are definitely having a moment. And in philosophy, this position that being born means to be harmed is what's known as antinatalism, which we'll be talking about a lot throughout the episode today. One of the reasons that antinatalism has become so popular, I think, too, is because of climate, right? A lot of people are really concerned about climate change. Uh, In fact, there was a study showing that one in four childless adults in the United States cited climate change as a factor in why they don't currently have children. Although I did recently see a meme that people might be rethinking this now that Rihanna is pregnant. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and that Rihanna's pregnancy is the death knell of anti-natalism. <sighs> but then I think mean, you, can, you can either be on the Rihanna side or you can be on the Miley Cyrus side because Miley Cyrus said in an interview that until I feel like my kid would live on an earth with fish in the water, I'm not bringing in another person to deal with that. So Miley Cyrus is on the anti-natalist side of things due to climate change.
0: I love that the polls for our political imagination are always celebrities. So it seems like <laughs> when it comes to the ethics of procreation, we have to choose between our Miley Cyrus commitments and our Rihanna commitments. I mean, uh, I, I think I prefer Rihanna, but in this particular case, oh, I I'm, de- I might side with... I definitely with, prefer Rihanna. Well, but in this particular case, I might actually go in the other direction. But you're right that Rihanna's pregnancy has changed discourse around procreation and around pregnancy.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, you have rampant economic insecurity, climate destruction, imminent political turmoil in many places of the world, if not already existing political turmoil. And then on the other side, you have, oh, Rihanna's having a baby. Let's be like Rihanna and bring more children into the world. Today,
0: we are talking about antinatalism.
1: Is birth a harm because life involves so much more pain than pleasure?
0: Is it better never to have been born
1: at all? And do humans have a duty not to bring children into the world, considering the ravages of climate change and overpopulation? David, where are you on the Raphael Samuel scale? Do you feel like you were harmed by being born? I don't know that
0: I was harmed by being born, but I feel like maybe other people were harmed by my being born. <laughs> <laughs> the first among them being my mother, definitely.
1: Poor, poor Lydia. Um, and also I can speak personally to being harmed by your existence.
0: <laughs> I do what I can.
1: I am very, very glad you were born. Let's think about why somebody might think that you were harmed in being born. Regardless of whether or not you harmed your mother. So a basic articulation of an antinatalist position would be as follows. Being alive means feeling pain. There is no way to avoid pain by coming into existence. And pain is a harm that we would otherwise not experience, right? If I didn't exist, I wouldn't experience anything at all. And pain would be one of those things that I didn't experience. Wouldn't it be better not to experience pain than to experience pain? If you agree with that, you will agree that existence is a harm. And it's not just a harm, but it's actually a very serious harm.
0: Yeah, that is a good description of the At times, convoluted logic, I think, (laughs) of antinatalist arguments. But I want to know, Ellie, whether you buy that argument that you just presented. Do you feel as if birth is not just a harm, but a serious harm?
1: No, I, I don't feel that way. I've been describing the view of philosopher David Benatar, who is the most famous proponent of antinatalism. Antinatalism, simply put, is the theory that it would be better never to have been born.
0: At all, period.
1: Yeah, that's the title of his book.
0: Yes. So Benatar's position can be counterintuitive. And in the past, when I've taught his material to my students, they have really strong reactions against it, right? They're like, no, that doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't square off with my view of existence and the value of existence. But then as you start digging into the details of his claims, one of his core arguments which then many of my students assent to, is that in general, there is more badness than goodness in living. So
1: life Mm. is generally
0: like more crappy than (laughs) than enjoyable.
1: So he's drawing a very counterintuitive conclusion, but showing you that it's based on intuitive premises.
0: And one of the ways that he does that is by talking about the pain-pleasure calculus of existence. And in short, his argument is that on the grand scale of things, pain outweighs pleasure in each of our lives. And he gives two different arguments for this. One is that it just lasts longer, right? Most of us will experience really amazing moments of pleasure and ecstasy, but they never last as long as moments of pain, despair, deep suffering. So if you just add up the amount of time that you are down rather than up, Mm -hmm. there's a clear imbalance between the two. And beyond just temporality, there's also the question of the intensity of the experiences in question, Mm. right? Even when I am at the highest of heights, that's never quite as intense as my lowest low. So when I am in the throng of grief or pain or depression The negativity of that experience is more negative than the positivity of my most positive experiences, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, the way that I was taught this as an intro to psych student in undergrad was that five positive things even out to one negative thing. And so so (laughs) you could get like five really positive YouTube comments, but then one negative one will cancel them all out. And so you would need six to everyone in order for there to be like a slightly positive balance in your life. And I also think we can find a number of arguments to this effect throughout the history of philosophy. There are certain precursors to Benatar's arguments in the 19th century philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer, who's sort of an antinatalist before antinatalism is a term. <laughs> and Schopenhauer says that misfortune is the general rule of our lives because well-being is negative and pain is positive. And what he means by that is, you know, in terms of negative and positive, we're not talking about bad and good. We're talking about the absence of something and the presence of something else.
0: Yeah, whether you notice it or not. Is that right?
1: Yes. So think about when your shoes fit perfectly. Mm -hmm. When your shoes (laughs) fit perfectly, you're not noticing them throughout the day, right? The whole point of a shoe fitting perfectly is that the shoe can get out of your range of conscious awareness. But when you have a slight pinch in your shoe, maybe it's a little too tight, suddenly all you can think about is how your foot hurts. And so Schopenhauer says that this is actually how we experience life in general. When we are in a state of well-being, we don't notice that. We don't appreciate it. But we do notice when something is slightly amiss. Pain has a presence in our life, whereas well-being is simply an absence of pain.
0: <laughs> yeah, it has a normative power that well-being doesn't. And this is an argument that the French historian of medicine, George Canguilhem, makes in connection to health. More generally, he says, look, when we're healthy, we are not aware of being healthy. But the moment that disease or pain or illness enters into our lives, it crowds our mental and experiential space. And we can think about nothing but that. And he has mm. this really nice definition where he says, Health is the silence of the organs. It's an (gasps) absence.
1: Oh, the silence of the organs as a way of describing health. That's so good.
0: Yeah, my organs right now are (laughs) screaming, by the way, so I am very much... You did
1: too many squats.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's (laughs) right. For our listeners, I confess to Ellie that I did way too many squats and I'm very uncomfortable at the moment. (laughs) Dude did 600 squats yesterday, Uh,
1: (laughs) which is something I cannot even imagine. The organs
0: are not quiet at the moment, yes. They are yelling (laughs) and squealing.
1: (laughs) Potentially, they will be quieter in the long term because of your exercise. Who knows? Um, But yeah, I mean, show Schopenhauer really draws from this point about the negative nature of pleasure and the positive nature of pain. That because existence is mostly made up of frustration and pain, our best moments in life are when we come as close as possible to non-existence. (laughs) So, So he says people tend to be happiest when they're on the brink of falling asleep. And the least happy when they what? wake up. Because <laughs> like, when you're about to fall asleep, you're about to be non-existent. And then when you wake up, it's like, oh, shit, a day of existence awaits me.
0: Oh, wow. I kind of love that, even though I'm not sure that I agree. Yeah, I definitely don't agree. Yeah, I, I want to believe that I've been happier than when I just like pass out <laughs> you're at <about> night. to <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> um, I have to say that there is an aspect of antinatalist philosophy that speaks to me. The problem for me is that antenatalists, whether they are old school like Schopenhauer or more contemporary figures like Benatar, they don't just say that existence is bad, which again, I might agree with. They go one step further and they say that non existence is better than existence. And I think this gets us into a lot of metaphysical puzzles that are really difficult to untangle. For example, How can we say that I would be better off not being when if I am not, then there is no I that would be better off, right? This is what you said Mm -hmm. about this lawsuit that was going to happen in India. How could this guy's consent have been taken before he was born into the world? And that's where I start hitting the brakes on antinatalism.
1: Yeah, and Benatar does say that it's not that the people who never existed, if we can even use that phrase, which we probably can't, (laughs) are better off than the people who are existing. But he's saying that among those people who exist, existence is bad for them. And once we say this, we can say that never coming into existence is better. A lot of this trades on what Benatar calls the asymmetry argument. And his view is basically as follows. So I, Ellie Anderson, currently exist. I'm alive, coming at you over your airwaves. And because I exist, I have both the presence of pain and the presence of pleasure. The presence of pain is bad, right? I woke up this morning with a nervous stomach ache because I have a lot on my plate this week. The presence of pleasure, though, is good. I had some delicious coffee this morning, made myself some nice chia pudding for breakfast. Fun, wonderful, good. So both pain exists in my life and pleasure exists in my life. Presence of pain bad, presence of pleasure good. But let's say that there's a non-existent. And like I said it's really hard to describe this because we can't talk about a non-existent being. So
0: you're about to say imagine that there's a non-existent Ellie in this non-existent realm.
1: <laughs> let's say non let's say non Ellie. <laughs> great
0: great. What's non Ellie up to?
1: Okay, so non Ellie has an absence of pain, right? Non-Eli doesn't exist, so they don't experience any pain. Not experiencing pain is good, but non-Eli also doesn't experience pleasure. You might think this is bad, right? The presence of pleasure was good, so why wouldn't the absence of pleasure be bad? But Benatar says, no, that's where you're wrong. The (laughs) absence of pleasure is actually neither good nor bad. It's simply not bad. Because if nothing exists to feel pleasure, then it's not as if that non-existent thing is being deprived by not feeling pleasure. So here's the asymmetry. Ellie experiences pain, which is bad, and pleasure, which is good. But non-Ellie experiences an absence of pain, which is good, and an absence of pleasure, which is not bad.
0: Okay, so... This is what I meant when I said that this gets complicated (laughs) and metaphysically um, uh, somewhat circuitous. But I think one way to visualize this, because it's different than the argument that we talked about with Schopenhauer. So the first argument about the pain, pleasure calculus is that within existence. So if we just focus in the existing realm, there's just more pain than pleasure. Therefore, existence is in general bad. That's the first argument. Now, when we get to the asymmetry argument, it's actually a comparison between existence and non-existence.
1: Yes. So it's not the asymmetry between pain and pleasure.
0: Correct. And so it seems like what you're saying, Ellie, that Benatar is saying is that the main difference between existence and non-existence is that Ellie will experience negativity in her life, a minus. But Mm -hmm. non-Ellie will never experience any kind of negativity. Because there is no negative value to non-existence. Either exactly. you're not suffering because you don't exist, which is good, or at worst, you are just not having pleasure, which is neutral.
1: Exactly. But what I find really weird about this is that why wouldn't Benatar just say that the absence of pain that characterizes non elie is neither good nor bad, but it's just not good, right? Like if the whole point is that the absence of pleasure is neither good nor bad for a non-existent entity, then why not say that the absence of pain is neither good nor bad either, right? Well, I think
0: this goes to his interpretation of pain as inherently problematic. We cannot Mm -hmm. imagine a case in which pain isn't bad, and therefore its absence is good because its absence is experienced, again, as the silence of the organs, which is a kind Mm. of goodness of normal well-being. But this is precisely where I kind of jump off the bandwagon
1: with Benatar. First, you put the brakes on antinatalism. Now you're jumping off the bandwagon altogether. (laughs) Uh, Oh, my gosh. Have you met me? I am basically a
0: wagon of confusing mixed metaphors. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But if we go back to Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer makes this claim that pain is just terrible. And that's why existence is not worth it. And Mm -hmm. I actually side a little bit more with one of Schopenhauer's critics in the 19th century, who is Nietzsche, who says, well, that presupposes that you then draw that additional conclusion that if existence is bad, that therefore it would be better not to exist. And Nietzsche Mm -hmm. says, no, even if there is a lot of negative stuff in existence, you can still whip up something positive out of it, even if pain never actually goes away. So I just think that Benatar gives too much weight to this differentiation between pain bad, absence of pain good. To me, that's just yeah. Too simplistic.
1: Yeah, I agree. In part because I-, I think when we're talking about what is good or bad, we have to have a human calculus already in mind, and we have to have somebody in mind for whom something is either good or bad. So this is where I worry that we're kind of positing accidentally some unborn non elie soul up in the universe somewhere, because I just don't think it really makes sense to talk about pain or pleasure outside of existence At all, right? We already have to have an existing being for whom something is good or bad in order to talk about what's good, bad, better, or worse. And the philosopher Elizabeth Harmon claims that Benatar's asymmetry argument has a problem of conflating impersonal goodness, just like this abstract notion of goodness in general with goodness for a person, right? And that's what I'm really interested in. I think goodness, when we're talking in terms of morality, has to be goodness for a person, ultimately.
0: Well, and I I like this distinction between goodness in the abstract versus goodness for a particular individual, because when we think about pain, I think we also have to think about the fact that the valuation of pain is not universal and invariant even in existence. Right, So if we think about cultural variation and more importantly, historical variation, we can imagine a lot of scenarios in which for an individual, pain that might be bad in the abstract is actually good, right? So mm. people can reinterpret the value of pain in ways that I don't think Benatar does justice to. And here we can think about any example of a historical or cultural practice that hinges on the value of pain. So think about, I don't know, your BDSM practices where there is value to experiences of pain. Think about autoflagellation practices in religious communities where you attain a kind of good through pain, which for Benatar would just not make any sense. So my point here is that pain might be bad when you talk about it in universal, invariant, disembodied, decontextualized terms, but when you localize it in particular forms of life, it can actually cross over onto the positive side of that calculus.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to mention that there are also different ways of thinking about the value of life that go beyond pleasure and pain as the two polarizing values, which I want to talk about a little bit more later. I also think just in general, I really do agree with the idea that Benatar's asymmetry argument doesn't work. Because the absence of pain should be considered as neither good nor bad in the same way that the absence of pleasure is considered neither good nor bad. I think it's weird that he's like the absence of pain is good for this non-existent non-being. And I'd had this sort of feeling about antinatalism for quite some time, but there was always something about it I couldn't put my finger on. And then there's a guy named Thaddeus Metz who has articulated precisely the objection to Benatar. And in reading that argument, I was like, oh, yes, this makes sense. What Benatar is getting wrong is that he is assuming that the absence of pain is a good thing for the non-existent being, whereas really it's just kind of like neutral or not bad. Yeah, you just want to
0: <laughs> say that in the non-existent realm, there is no good or bad everything is just neutral because nothing exists that's your view yeah
1: non-existent realm doesn't exist not even a realm yeah (laughs) i agree with
0: you that valuing the non-existent from the perspective of the existent is a kind of leap that is philosophically problematic
1: you talked about a moment where you jump off the antinatalist bandwagon altogether. And (laughs) you mentioned that that was in part because of Nietzsche's rejection of Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer, very pessimistic philosopher. Nietzsche has a reputation for being a pessimist sometimes, but actually is not a pessimist at all. Why do you agree with Nietzsche that even if life involves suffering, it doesn't follow that life is worthless?
0: Because I buy Nietzsche's argument in his book, The Birth of Tragedy, that even if there is a lot of suffering in existence, all the way to the point of reaching the conclusion that existence is meaningless, that doesn't quite mean that our existence in this world, unideal as it may be, cannot be somehow justified through human action. So in this book, Nietzsche says, look, we have forgotten just how meaningless life is. And he cites the mythical figure Silenus, who famously said to the ancient Greeks that the best thing that a human can do is to never have been born. And then that the second best thing that a human can do is basically kill themselves. And Nietzsche says, I think Silenus is right, that existence is an abyss in which you can find no foundation. There is no bedrock that will secure meaning and value for the life that you have. Nonetheless, and this is why he writes extensively about ancient Greek tragedy and music, we can justify existence through music, through art, and even through mythology. He says existence can only be justified aesthetically, i.e. through Mm -hmm.
1: art. Yeah, and one way that we can think about art is the transformation of the pain and suffering of human existence Into something that is beautiful. I don't know if we might Mm -hmm. call it pleasurable. Certainly, some would. I'd be probably fine with that, but we'd have to be thinking about pleasure in a way that's not just about like the physical pleasure of not having my shoe pinch, something that is sublimated, to use a term from Freud, something that really helps us achieve higher order goals of human existence.
0: And Nietzsche doesn't use the term pleasurable. He uses three other terms. He says that through art, we can sublimate existence into either the comic, so we can make fun of existence, the beautiful, so you look at something in art that just stirs up certain emotions, or the sublime, which is a combination Mm. of something that is fascinating and awful at the same time. So it's not that existence suddenly becomes pleasurable, it's just that it can be comic, beautiful and sublime, arguably all at the Mm -hmm. same time.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're saying, David, points to one of the problems for me with the roles of pleasure and pain in our everyday lives, because I buy the idea that there are higher-order goals to human existence that either are higher-order pleasures or that even go past pleasure altogether. And this is one of the points that philosopher Elizabeth Harmon makes in response to Benatar. She says that Benatar fails to distinguish between the higher-order pleasures of life and the minor pains that we experience.
0: So can you give me an example of what, for Harman, would be a high-order
1: pleasure that cancels out a lot of tiny little pains? Because of my profession, one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is the writing process. Let's say writing a book. Writing a book involves all kinds of everyday minor pains. (laughs) Uh, Writing is challenging. It is a tough thing to do. It requires grappling with very everyday banal demons. But ultimately, the finished product of having written a book, I think, makes those pains worth it for a lot of people. And even if we're thinking beyond minor pains to really, really serious pains and serious suffering in human existence, Harmon uses the example of somebody who has received a cancer diagnosis at a young age. And she says, according to Benatar, the fact that people often die from painful illnesses and often die young is one of the problems with existence. Mm -hmm. He uses that as part of his antenatalist argument. And Harmon just sees no reason to conclude that somebody who receives a cancer diagnosis at a young age, let's say it's a terminal cancer diagnosis, should not have been born, Right. She says, having loving relationships, doing work that we find rewarding, those can contribute to a life that is well worth living because it contains good experiences.
0: Yeah, I am persuaded by what you were saying, because I do think that if we equalize pain and pleasure into simply two categories with the same weight across the board, we lose a lot of nuance about what it is that we value about our own existence. And you know, I can say as somebody who, who has written a book that that that's a good description of my experience. <laughs> it was awful at times. And then you get this high at the very end of the process that justifies it retroactively. And it makes you think, mm, maybe I would do that again, which is precisely what you said all along you would never do. But mm-hmm. even beyond that, I think whenever you get to the point of making arguments about who should and should not have been born, you are entering into very dangerous territory. And this is also a problem that I have with Benatar's antinatalist position is that sometimes it does reek of ableism to a large extent Mm -hmm. because of social norms and expectations that we have around the value of people with disabilities, especially from an able-bodied perspective. I think we run a real risk of saying the life of this person should not have happened because I am projecting myself into their shoes and assuming that I would not have wanted to exist if that had been the hand that I had been dealt.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that because Benatar really wants to guard against this worry. He actually thinks that his version of antinatalism is less ableist than a lot of arguments about the value of human life. But he points out that we often think it's wrong to procreate if the person who would be created would have a life that was worse than a typical human life. But for Benatar, it's not clear why the typical human life would be the cutoff point for a life that's worth living and a life that is different or less, Mm -hmm. or according to a lot of people, would would mean that it's not worth living. So he's like, I'm just going to say no human, life. Yes. <laughs> no human life is better than non-existence. Yeah, and
0: so maybe here, one way to articulate my worry, is not so much about the antinatalist position as articulated by Benatar, but as about the potential uptake of that position yeah. by others in a social setting where we're already primed to equate disability with more pain, mm-hmm. more suffering.
1: Definitely. And I think also a lot of antinatalists equate The idea that life is suffering with the idea that life is not worth living. And I wonder actually how much of it traces back to Schopenhauer, who was deeply inspired by Buddhist philosophy but didn't always follow out Buddhist philosophies to their conclusions. So the idea that life is suffering is a key tenet in Buddhist philosophy. According to Buddhist traditions, humans are caught up in a wheel of suffering, a wheel of samsara, and our goal is to break out of that wheel of suffering. But Buddhist philosophy does not reach antinatalist conclusions. The way to get out of the wheel of suffering is not by not being born at all. In fact, Buddhists see birth as a good because it's only by being born that we are able to reach the point of enlightenment, to reach the point of getting out of the wheel of suffering. And human birth in particular is seen as a good in Buddhist metaphysics because it is humans who have reached the point at which we may become enlightened. We can become aware of the four noble truths, one of which is that life is suffering and another of which is that there is a way out of this suffering. So Schopenhauer is inspired by the Buddhist philosophy that life is suffering but comes to very different conclusions. Well, I would say that
0: that's an interesting reason to reject antinatalism from the perspective of people being born, because it shows why existing might be good for them, right? Because it enables you to reach enlightenment. It enables you to reach these higher order pleasures that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. But there is another aspect of antinatalist philosophy, which hinges less on whether existence is good for the people who are either going to exist or not, but on Mm. procreation. And whether Mm -hmm, bringing mm -hmm. more new beings into existence is good for those who are already there. So aren't living sentient beings, and not just human beings, ultimately harmed by more people coming into the world? So for example, the more people that there are, of course, the worse climate destruction becomes, the more that the natural world is devastated. Think about deforestation, think about the oppression of animals think about pollution. So this would be, the, I think, the Miley Cyrus version of the argument. Is that right?
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. Yeah, this idea that you should not, under the current conditions of the world, bring in another person.
0: Yeah, so it's much more context-dependent than the first argument, which is just about the absolute value of existence versus non-existence.
1: Yeah, and this is actually the second major type of antinatalism, And it's called the misanthropic version of antinatalism. What we've been talking about up to this point is the other form, which is the benevolent or philanthropic form of antinatalism. The idea that if you're considering the perspective of the person who may or may not be born, it's better for them not to be born, right? You want to do them a good by not bringing them into existence. Mm -hmm. The misanthropic argument is about doing a good to (laughs) non-humans by not bringing in more humans into the world, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So one is like, humans are good, let's not harm them by giving them life. The other one is humans are crappy, (laughs) so don't bring them into the world (laughs) because they'll ruin it for everybody else. (laughs) Well, and if you buy this misanthropic argument, then you might be tempted to agree with one of the most controversial conclusions that Benatar reaches, which is that we have a moral obligation not to procreate, not to bring new members of the species into existence who will cause irreparable harm and damage to the world. Humans cause suffering, therefore we should not bring new ones into the Mm -hmm.
1: world. And this leads us to the ethics of procreation. Enjoying this episode? Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also connect with us and other listeners on Facebook and Instagram.
0: Even though David Benatar is by far the most famous spokesperson for antenatalism, the term was first used by the French philosopher Théophile de Giraud who has written a couple of books on the subject, including one that is amazingly titled The Art of Guillotining the Procreators, colon, <laughs> an antinatalist manifesto. Oh. Um, That's the most French thing I've ever heard. Yes, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is written like a manifesto with lots of calls to action and lots of exclamation points. And okay. in it, he says that there are basically no good reasons to have children and people should stop procreating.
1: What? Yes. Well, if there are no good reasons for having children, then why do people have them since obviously they do? Well, he interprets the will to have children as a
0: combination of narcissism, infantilism, and jealousy. So in short, (laughs) he says that we want to replicate ourselves at infinitum because we are afraid of death and procreation through children, biological procreation is the one way in which we get to achieve immortality in our world. And moreover, we also want the social perks of having children. Um, And he doesn't mean like taxes or other kinds of material benefits. He's talking about symbolic perks, the fact that People who have children get treated differently on account of having contributed to the future of the family, the future of the nation, and the extension of the species.
1: That one I can definitely buy because I have noticed this strange tendency among people who have children to be super sanctimonious. Um, And and they just have like the whole weight of society behind them. And so they get to say really, really annoying and rude things to the childless folks like myself. Like, (laughs) oh, must be nice to have time to do your work. I'm like, yeah, it is nice to have time to do my work. Like, you chose to have a child, so you don't have time to do work. But like, what if I were to say it to them, must be nice to have a husband and child? Like, that would be, that would just seem desperate. Yes. But they get to seem like they're like on the high, on the, you know, mo- on some moral high ground for being like, oh, like, must be nice, this long-suffering martyrdom. Oh my
0: gosh. So I think Théophile uh, de Giraud just hates children. Uh, but this is one of his arguments. He says that parents are allowed by society to vaunt their superiority in front of others. And let me read you this quote. And this is characteristic of his writing style. Let me just say that. Quote, God knows that parents love to take any opportunity to strut around with their unbearable, intrusive spawns (laughs) in every public place available, parks, museums, theaters, hospitals, cemeteries, unemployment offices, by pushing in front of them with a puffed chest Those caricatures of a sarcophagus (laughs) that are their strollers. Or even, (laughs) it's not over, or even by dangling under the noses of innocent bystanders their shopping basket from which an ugly squealing head emerges, much to the delight of the makers who benefit at little cost from their little siren who captures our attention and stimulates our repressed instinct for murder. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow. Okay, I, I just want to go on the record and say I I love children. I, I think this is hilarious, but I'm not like, wow, there, there's a lot going on here. Um, I'm curious actually about Théophile de Jeho's psychoanalytic <laughs> yes. uh, baggage that he's bringing to the table here. But I did, you know, apropos of this. I did have an experience recently where a friend who has a child, who chose to have a child, has a very secure economic condition, accused another one of our friends of childless privilege.
0: Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) And said, check your childless privilege.
0: Uh, And I'm just like,
1: "What? what? How can you possibly say that? Yeah, it will you know, you know the rhetoric. It's like, who's, what? who's the privileged one by society here, for starters? But then there's a lot of other things to say. This is not like a privilege. And you can tell somebody to check their childless privilege. Or in the same way, you can tell them to check their white privilege. Yeah, it's like,
0: oh, <laughs> you're the person that doesn't go to the park privilege. You know, it's like a choice that you made. <laughs> what are you talking about? I know. But let me say that even though Dejero's rhetoric can be bombastic and sometimes even a little bit off-putting, He does reach this conclusion that we should refrain from having children because there are no good reasons for procreation, because all reasons that people give for having children ultimately reflect this fear of death, this desire to replicate the self, and a desire to accumulate uh, material and symbolic benefits in society. But he recognizes that asking people not to have children, period, is largely impractical. So he spends a lot of time talking about how we can live antinataly in a natalist culture. So given that people are likely to have children, what are things that we as a society can do to move the needle from natalism to antinatalism? One thing is recognize that if we selfishly bring a child into this world, at the very least, we incur a moral obligation to absolutely ensure to the extent that this is possible, that that being's life is the best possible life. Not just a good life, but the best possible life. And he coins a new term, which is agathogenics, which comes from the Greek root agathos, meaning good, and gene, meaning birth. And he says agathogenics is different from another term that has a similar etymology, which is eugenics which has a very different meaning for him. Yes, so he's like, I'm not talking about eugenics Ah. at all. Because eugenics is about deciding who is and who is not good enough to be born, right? Who's worthy of being. But agathogenics is about ensuring that whoever is born, independently of who they are, has the best possible life that we can give them. And that means that we have to really raise the bar on procreation and parenting. And we need to pass laws that protect children from non-ideal situations. So he has a lot of practical recommendations. He says, if you're going to be a parent, you need to go through formal education. Maybe you need a couple of years of college to study child development, child care, child nutrition. So just like you need to pass a test for a driver's license, he says, you should pass some formal requirement before you're allowed to have children. He also says that people who are prospective parents should have to go to psychoanalysis because one of the problems, <laughs> and the, I, I don't disagree with this point. is when
1: I thought he couldn't get any more French.
0: I, I know. But he says one of the problems is that parents, without realizing it, replicate a lot of their childhood trauma through their own children, because their parenting style ends up being ultimately an unconscious critique of the parenting style of their parents, right? Like, I won't do what my daddy did, or I won't do what my mother did. And so there is a lot that the child endures on account of the baggage that the parents have not worked through about their own childhood. And Mm -hmm. my favorite point that he brings up is that actually nobody should be having children before 30. He says, already (laughs) Plato recognized this in the laws, uh, in the dialogue, the laws about marriage. Plato says people should not get married before 30 because they're not mature enough. And he says, what? Yeah.
1: Wait, really? Like people were, what was the life expectancy at that point in the le- age of fertility? That's shocking to me. Well, I
0: think people lived into their 50s, definitely. And uh, I mean, but this is also Plato's recommendation, right? They also say that you shouldn't become a philosopher until like 40. So you and I are not <laughs> even there yet. And uh, Giro says, that sounds right to me. If you're at 20-something year old, you probably shouldn't be having kids yet.
1: Okay. Yeah. <sighs> I'm really resisting the urge to like pull an ad hominem attack on De Giro right now because he just sounds like so freaking toxic. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's not fair. Oh no, I know it's not fair. That's why I'm I'm trying to find some more philosophical reasons to reject what he's saying. So I was really interested when you said that for him, we need to pass laws that protect children from non ideal situations. Because where my mind went was oh, great. De Giro is suggesting social protections and a wider social safety net for parents so that there's not as much of a responsibility on the nuclear family system, on one or two parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, because for me, a huge part of the problem with parenting in our society is just how much pressure it puts on the individual parents. But then once you actually described all of the things that De Giro thinks the laws should pertain to. They're all about individual parents. The parents need to go through formal education. The parents need to undergo psychoanalysis. The parents need to be 30 years of age or more. And for one, I think that's really, really a bad solution because it's ultimately keeping the nuclear family structure of the privatization of parenting in place, but now just saying that we should also persecute parents (laughs) if they don't live up to this. And I also think that there's very much a gender asymmetry that is behind this because people who give birth are often more fertile before they're the age of 30. And, you know, who are we talking about? (laughs) Like when we say not before 30 and make it seem like that's just a universal claim, but it actually pertains more to one side of the population than another. And that's not to say that men's fertility also isn't an issue or, you know, people who have semen, not always men, people who have (laughs) semen. That's like a very weird... (laughs) way of putting it but still I, I think hopefully you get what i'm saying which is just that th- this is a claim that has been leveled against antinatalism from feminists is that a lot of times antinatalist arguments end up really putting a lot more pressure on people who have ovaries and wombs who for the most part are women yeah
0: so i think the argument about 30 definitely is susceptible to this argument The claim about formal education and undergoing psychoanalysis, he's clear that he means this for parents independently of their sex or gendered identity.
1: But it's still presumably within a nuclear family structure where he's imagining a two-parent System, Maybe he's recognizing the prevalence of single parenthood, especially single motherhood. But if he's not like I'm not getting the vibe, I want I want like communal parenting situations myself <laughs> and a
0: really strong social safety net by the state. Well, yes, but here we have to think about the context in which he's writing, right? He's writing in a French context where there are those social networks to a much larger extent than they are in the U.S. Mm. So he takes it for granted that there should be state funded child care facilities, pretty significant maternity and. paternity leave for new parents who are bringing a child into the world. What he is saying is that those safety nets that we currently have are not enough because they don't recognize the psychological and, in fact, existential significance of bringing Mm -hmm. a child into the world. So he's not undercutting them as much as adding on top of them. But to my knowledge, Mm -hmm. he doesn't require that that be a nuclear family It's just that that's the form that it culturally takes and has taken for some time recently.
1: Yeah, but psychoanalysis itself as a practice is rooted in nuclear family systems. But I also think, take the nutrition point. He says that parents should have education in children's nutrition. I actually think that that's a pretty cool idea. But why not also say cities need to have accessible and healthy, affordable food you know, so that we don't have food deserts. Because what are two years of nutrition education going to do for parents who live in a food desert? Yeah, of course.
0: And I guess my point here is that he is not in favor of austerity measures about parenting or privatizing it. Again, because he's coming out of that Mm -hmm. largely socialist French context. But maybe he should devote more time to specifying the ways in which we could break down the nuclear family.
1: I want to jump back to the gender point for a moment, though, because I was having a conversation recently with friend of the podcast, Jessica Locke, (laughs) who said that part of the problem with antinatalist arguments for her is that they end up looking a lot like the conservative argument about policing women's bodies through anti-abortion laws. So the conservative position would be that women have a duty to give birth. The antinatalist position would be people have a duty not not to give birth. But then there's a hidden premise in that claim, which is that who are the people who give birth? By and large, it's women. And so the antinatalist position ends up looking like women have a duty not to give birth, which is the obverse of the conservative position that women do have a duty to give birth.
0: Okay, so two different thoughts come to mind here for me. The first one is that Giro talks about this argument in his book on guillotining the procreators, and he says that... <laughs> In fact, they women. <laughs> <We're just
1: kidding. laughs>
0: um, no, and he says that in fact, his brand of antinatalism grows out of feminist critiques of reproduction in the 20th century and the central feminist premise that women have zero duties to have children. Of course, then it takes mm. a turn towards a, ne- a, a negative duty. But yeah, because it's one thing to say you
1: don't you don't have a duty to have yes. children. It's another thing to say you have a duty not to, not have, to children. have children.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's where I think we need to be careful about the term that we use for that negative duty because it's not that people have a duty not to give birth because then that mm. does gender it in a particular way. The argument, and that's contained already in the title, is that people have a duty not to procreate. And it's not just mm-hmm, typically mm-hmm. women who procreate. More importantly, this would also include a duty not to bring people into the world, for example, through artificial means that don't involve mm. a traditional okay. pregnancy
1: or birth. So, so, David, as a gay man, you're on the oh, hook, too. Oh, no, definitely. Definitely. No, no sperm donor. Or sorry, um, what's the opposite of a sperm donor? An egg donor? A sperm receiver? No, <laughs> no egg donor for you. <laughs> um,
0: I just said sperm receiver. That is not at all the kind of opposite you were looking for. But no, so the, the category here is procreation rather than parturition. And I think we need to be careful there because it, it does make the gender politics a little bit more different.
1: Wait, what is parturition?
0: Parturition, like the act of giving birth. Oh. The physical act.
1: Literally never heard that in my life. My mom was a doula. She helped women give birth. And I have not even heard that yeah, term. So uh, doulas are
0: parturition <laughs> experts.
1: Whoa, okay. Well, and I do think that is interesting, David, because I will say when we're thinking about abortion arguments, I am not of the mind that the whole story is my body, my choice. I think it's very, very important for people who can give birth, most of whom are women, but not all of whom are women, to be able to have choices about their own bodies. But I also think that like it's important for us to have a view of childbearing that does not put all of the onus just on the person who is either able to give birth or not give birth. So I, I do think that that's interesting to sort of widen it out to the procreation part rather than just giving birth. Yeah, because the
0: problem is not the physical act, the biological reality of birth. It's actually the act of engendering a new being. And in fact, Derrida refers totally. to human beings in general as us, the forcefully engendered.
1: But I also think when Giro talks about the importance of parenting and giving a child not just a good life, but the best possible life, there are implicit gendered assumptions there, too, because who are the people, by and large, who are giving children good lives? It tends to be women. Yeah, and
0: I think there is an antinatalist argument as to why that's wrong, because that mm-hmm, imbalance mm-hmm. in the gender distribution of parenting no, but he duties— he thinks
1: that we should—yeah, yeah, but he thinks that we should, if we are going to bring children in the world, give them the best possible yes, lives, and right? and
0: I think— One possible reading is that when men don't step up to the plate, that's a Mm. major problem because then it creates Mm -hmm, an unideal mm -hmm. situation for the child. But again, this is the difference between the argument and its social uptake. Now, I agree with you that thinking about the cultural context is important. And one of the arguments that Dejero makes that really caught my eye is his argument that we don't just need to pass laws to make the lives of whichever children are going to be born better and more ideal whether that's at the individual level or with the help of the government he says we mm-hmm. actually need a cultural revolution around the very meaning of fertility itself hmm. and in short we need to reevaluate what we think about barrenness about childless privilege what what you call childless privilege
1: <laughs> no no um, let's not make that a i thing. know i know
0: but <laughs> Giro says, in no uncertain terms, we need to learn to cheer for and maybe even glorify people who choose not to have children. If you want to add value to existence, he says, you ought to sublimate, to use a term that you already Mm -hmm. uh, used from Freud, you ought to sublimate your sexual energy into a kind of symbolic birthing or symbolic procreation rather than literal procreation. So instead of having literal Mm. babies, why don't you generate something that adds meaning to the world that is not a living being? Like, write a book, create art, engage in activism, build up that sense of community that Ellie, you say, is missing from our approach to parenting. Give birth to something that is not going to suffer.
1: I love that. I was just at a wedding this past weekend. And sometimes people assume that I'm not into weddings because as a feminist philosopher, I often critique uh, <laughs> norms of heterosexual <laughs> romantic love and marriage. But I actually love weddings and I think they're great. And I'm going to a baby shower next weekend. And I'm, so I'm in between a wedding and a baby shower. And I was telling my partner last night, I was like, you know what? I just wish we had more things like this. I'm not about getting rid of weddings and baby showers. I'm about also having a party for getting a new job or also having a party for another kind of relationship. Let's celebrate a friendship with an exchange <laughs> of vows. An
0: article shower. <laughs> celebrate
1: a birth. <laughs> yeah, celebrate a birth of a new book. Yes, an article yes, shower. Yes, I would invite <laughs> you and I would expect
0: all my friends to give me gifts. Um, and actually, Dijero says that this new movement that seeks to reimagine the value of fertility versus barrenness already has a heroine or an idol, and that's Athena, who is the Greek goddess of war, (gasps) who was born to Zeus, but who herself refused to bear any children. Nonetheless, Athena created a lot of cultural value and significance for the Greeks. And in his really awful prose at times, he says, (laughs) Athena, quote, initiates us to the idea that true fertility is that of the soul and not that of the crotch." End quote.
1: Well, <laughs> Athena herself wasn't even born through a crotch. She was born straight out of Zeus's yes, head. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I actually played Athena in a high school play. I thought I was so cool. I got to wear this all gold outfit. So I just want to personally thank my parents for giving birth to me so I could play, play Athena. the role of Athena. One of the higher order pressures high
0: in existence Absolutely. that justify <laughs> being in the world.
1: Well, in that case, I guess our hand is forced and we need to become Team Miley rather than Team Rihanna. <laughs> we hope you
0: enjoyed today's episode please rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify
1: or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can find us at overthinkpodcast.com where you can email us with questions feedback or even request for life advice you can also find us
0: on instagram and twitter at overthink underscore pod We want to thank our audio editor, Aaron Morgan, as well as our production assistant, Sam Hernandez.
1: Samuel P.K. Smith for the original music and Trevor Ames for our logo. And to our listeners, thanks so much for overthinking with us.